Hello and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. My name's Victor, and in this episode, we are going to be talking about the film Over the Hedge. This is another film club episode. And joining me this week are environmental educators Aisha and Lauren. Um, Aisha, would you like to just give us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi Victor. Yeah, I'm an environmental educator. I've worked in a lot of different places. I currently work at the Natural History Museum, but I've also worked at London Zoo, uh, Toronto Zoo in Canada, um, also over in Australia, New Zealand and Argentina. So yeah, I've a been lucky enough to have a chance to look around and yeah, work in lots of different environments and see lots of different habitats. Amazing. So you'd be a great one to have in on this one. Um, and new guest to the show, we've got Lauren. Tell us a bit about yourself, Lauren. Hi, guys. Um, so I've been working in environmental education for maybe around four years now. I started out as a volunteer at uh, ZSL London Zoo and the Natural History Museum as well. And currently work at ZSL as a learning instructor, so teaching school groups that come in about things that are affecting animals out in the wild and what we can do to help them. So today the film that we're talking about again is Over the Hedge and this is a DreamWorks film that came out in 2006 directed by Carrie Kirkpatrick and Tim Johnson. Um, So briefly the the film's about a group of animals who wake up from hibernation and they have discovered a hedge has popped up cutting through their forest Um, and it's about them and the humans who have moved in next door and how they interact and how uh, this group of animals is is trying to get some food. So what did you guys think that this film did well? Um, The thing I liked about this film, the thing I think it did well was um, the depiction of uh, how habitat loss affects these animals. So you can see in the film there's a part where it shows on a map the small amount of space the animals have once they've woken up from hibernation and the sort of expanse of the buildings that humans have done around them. And I quite like how scary that was for them because it would be scary for an animal for this thing to just appear like this massive hedge and the unknown and, you know, they don't know where they can get food from anymore or shelter or anything like that. So I quite liked that as a concept in the film. Yeah, I think it did that really well. And I, I really love that moment as well, where he shows them the uh, map of the area and there, there's just this tiny green dot now left in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aisha, what did you think? Um, yeah, I really liked it. Um, one thing I really loved about it was the fact that they always corrected people when they thought that the um, tortoise was an amphibian. And uh, yeah, they really were like, no, he's a reptile. Uh, I loved that about it. And I, yeah, I, re- I really liked the characters as well, that they all had uh, their own different kind of approaches to the situation. And the fact that the main character was a raccoon and, of course, was very crafty and well versed in how to get the best, the most delicious of treats in the suburban neighborhoods. Yeah, I uh, love RJ, the, the raccoon character, because he he fits that image of raccoons that I think those of us who are from North America. So I'm from Canada and raccoons are affectionately, I'd say, nicknamed trash pandas because they rummage around in your in your trash cans and can be a bit of a nuisance. But I think their pluck and spirit are are kind of admired. There's um, this viral video clip from a couple of years ago of a raccoon 
sneaking in the window of, I think it's a Tim Horton, so a donut shop. And he's like dangling from the window and just like stealing donuts from from the back with his hands. And then like up he goes and out he goes. I think the uh, the city of Toronto um, actually had a big problem with, um, they spent millions and millions of dollars uh, trying to make raccoon-proof bins to stop the raccoon getting in. And I think within four months, there was already videos of them figuring it out. So they're, they're very smart. So yeah, they're definitely one of the animals that have adapted to living with humans really well. Kind of like here in London, uh, the foxes have really adapted well to living with humans. So I, I wonder if it, if this were a British film, if we'd have a, a fox taking the place of RJ the raccoon. I reckon we, we could. Yeah, I can imagine that happening. I'd love to see a British version with all of our kind of native wildlife in and see how that would work. That would be cool. Yeah. Yeah, they have it's very North American wildlife. Um, all of the all of the different ca- characters, except for the I think I thought maybe the the odd one out was the, the tortoise. Yeah, although there are a good number of um, turtles, so I'm not sure if it's a tor- I guess it's he's was mostly terrestrial so we'd call it a a tortoise instead of a turtle i think he's meant to be a turtle even though he spends most of his time on land what did you guys think of humans in the film i thought that the film did quite well at showing um how some people anyways feel about wildlife nearby they did it especially well i think with the woman who was the homeowners association president that she wanted everything to be very well manicured and very clean and that didn't in any way include any of the little uh, the little animals running in her back garden and the fact that she even had a pedigree cat to boot yeah I think she was um pretty good as the kind of villain of the film like her attitudes and things towards these animals I thought yeah they portrayed quite well some people's attitudes towards them as well and um, yeah. yeah I love the introduction of the um the fact that uh, she wanted to use inhumane methods as well. I thought that was very well um, put into the film, that she wanted to not just go with the, the methods, that were the humane methods of getting rid of the little animals, but using illegal ones. Mm. I think it was interesting that she didn't seem to know what they were as well. So there was in the film, there's a point where she sees a possum and she calls it a white rat. So she obviously, she lives next to this forest, she doesn't want any wildlife, but she also doesn't know what they are, how they behave. Um, and I think that's quite um, telling as well. And that kind of, I think that's quite a common thing. People just don't understand these animals. They just have this fear of them, but they don't understand them and why they're coming into their garden. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because if you if these people didn't even know what the animals were, why did they not like them? Like they don't know, you know, I... I feel like it would be one thing to be a bit frightened of an animal that you knew could be dangerous or poisonous but if you don't even know what it is like why would you be so scared and disgusted by them other than the fact that you don't know them so you're a bit worried about things you don't know yeah absolutely it's the unknown that can be quite scary and lots of rumors about animals as well so like over here rats in the wild if i see a rat in the wild i think well that's cute but other people would think that they're dirty and they carry diseases and things like that. Um, and it, yeah, it's just the unknown. And I think raccoons in North America kind of have a similar reputation that they're kind of dirty and disease ridden when they're 
you know, they're not really. And pigeons as well. Mm-hmm. The theme through most of the film is uh, food and how important food is in, in the minds of these animals. You know, but basically everything they're thinking about is food. And, you know, they wake up from hibernation and they've only got a few berries left. And, oh, no, we have got to spend the whole year foraging for food now. I thought that was that was quite good because that is a lot of how animals are are operating. You know, they spend a lot of their time looking around for food. So I thought the film dealt with that quite well. Yeah, and the idea of hibernation as well and what can happen, how long these animals sleep for, for hibernation, that a whole um, housing estate could have been built while they were in hibernation was really interesting. With this now much smaller habitat and they're worried about where they can get their food, how much more difficult it could be in the future. Because if that's how close they were to hunger, but now they've got so much less area to find their food, what's going to happen to these animals? Um, So I thought that at at least initially the film kind of raised this issue um, quite well. Yeah, same. I think they did well to show that kind of panic of like not having enough food. And like you said, now that their territory is so much smaller, where are they going to get it from? So I think, yeah, they did that well. So I think this is a good point to maybe transition into what did the movie not do so well at? Because while I think the film raised the issue of food and the availability of food, what I think it didn't do very well at was talking about what kind of food these animals needed. Because... You know, basically throughout most of the film, only once or twice is human food mentioned as being junk. But for the most part, all of these animals, you know, as soon as they've had some of that food, they're like, oh, this is so amazing. This is so delicious. And all they want is that human food. And the film never really deals with the fact that human food can be quite unhealthy for wildlife. Yeah, they seem to put um, that kind of stereotypical snack food on quite a high pedestal, like the animals, when they try it, it's amazing. There's so many shots of them really enjoying eating it. And they'll go to quite extreme lengths of getting it. But in reality, is that food, I mean, that food shouldn't be fed to these wild animals. But it's the whole kind of thread of the film about trying to get this food. Yeah, there's only, as you say, there's only one point where um, they actually say, they point out that the log is filled. But then obviously the tortoise says it's filled, but it's all filled with junk. And that's the only time they mention the fact that the food has no sort of nutritional value to it for them to eat. Yeah, that's the only moment where it's just touched on. But yeah, they it, it never goes into much more than that. I think that's actually a, a problem of the film. I think that was actually something that is quite bad because feeding um, bread and crisps to wildlife is it's not good for the wildlife mm-hmm. there is one point as well um, that rj mentions as he's handing out the um, tortilla chip all the different things that are included in it like msg mm-hmm. so that's only yeah it's only a few seconds that they mention that in a film that's over an hour and 20 and so i think the real life link is this discussion that it kind of happens every year about whether or not you should feed um, bread to ducks and and wildlife and there's you know some some organizations say yes it's fine others say no you really shouldn't and 
I land on the side that really you shouldn't be feeding bread to ducks and other wildlife. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't feed them at all, but just feed them the right kind of things. That's something I've been researching quite a lot recently because um, we've been going out along the canal and there's some swans that have had some cygnets recently. And around the nest, all you can see is like um, bits of bread, the crusts and things like that. But looking online, um, I think a lot of sort of swan rescue places say that you can feed them, but feed them more kind of natural food like they find in the wild, like things like leaves, like um, grass or lettuce or seeds and things like that. Things that aren't sort of human manufactured, the more natural foods would be better for them. Yeah, definitely. I think, and for me, it's not just with bread and like a lot of other um, things that you can feed wild animals. If it ends up in the ponds or the small lakes where these animals live, um, as it breaks down, um, the bacteria that break it down actually use a lot, um, up a lot of the oxygen in the water and the other animals that live in the water. So the little fish, a lot of little, um, little invertebrates. If those oxygen levels drop in the water, um, it means that they don't have enough to be able to survive because all that oxygen has been taken up by the bacteria that are breaking down that bread. So it can actually be very harmful for all the other smaller animals that uh, live in ponds and small lakes as well. And because it's not a river, it doesn't have that much oxygen coming back into the water. So it, it can be very, very damaging for other animals. Yeah, I think that's really key is, is to kind of remember that while you might think that, oh, I'm not I'm not feeding them that much, but especially in an urban area, there's loads of other people in the community who will be coming by and feeding them. So actually, you know, this one pond could be getting loaves and loaves of bread dumped in it every day. And so, you know, the animals just may not be able to eat it all. And then, as you said, it starts to break down. It can cause bacterial and algal blooms in the pond, which not just suck out oxygen, but it can actually affect the feathers on a lot of ducks and birds. So sometimes you'll see on swans, they'll have um, like a reddish or pinkish coloring on their feathers. And that's actually bacteria um, eating the feathers because there's just too much yeast and, and other stuff in the pond from all the bread that's going into it. So it can cause that. And then um, it's just not got all the nutrients that they they need. You know, it's it's kind of like humans. If we ate just bread and water all the time, we would get really unhealthy because it doesn't have everything we need. And it's the same with them. You know, us feeding swans and ducks bread, it's a really easy source of food for them. And because they just they will want to eat, you know, all the time. They'll eat and fill up on that stuff because it's so easy and their diet will end up being much more limited. So I think Laura and I end up on the, the same kind of argument as um, the, the same place as, as you are, that it's much better to feed them those more natural things. So like you said, lettuce, peas is a good option or um, the, the grains themselves. So if, Instead of feeding them bread, you can feed them actual wheat kernels or barley kernels, and that's healthier because it's more of the grain generally, but it's also just a more natural part of what they would normally eat. So a lot of ducks and swans, a big part of their autumn and winter diet is um, seeds and, and grass seeds. 
Um, whereas at this time of the year, a lot more of their diet is that soft green plant. So just have a think about what these animals would be eating at this time of year. And if you are going to feed them, try to mimic that rather than giving them those loaves of bread. I really like the idea of how um, all the animals only take what they need. But the thing that the thing that kind of trips them up in the film is not taking what they need. It's when they take more than they need, which I kind of like from not just an environmental view, but it's it's a good kind of overall moral that I liked from the film. As long as you just take what you need, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. RJ the raccoon, he gets into basically all the trouble be, because he just wants that he wants everything. He's not satisfied with the bits that he has and, and what he needs. He wants everything, and that gets him into trouble. It's a really good point. Um, another thought on feeding animals un- unhealthy foods. There's some examples from um, the very early days of zoos, really, where humans didn't do a very good job of keeping animals in captivity. And um, what people might want to look up is the story of Jumbo the elephant, who's a very famous, um, I believe, African elephant that started out in um, the London Zoo, actually, ZSL London, but eventually moved over into the States. But he was famous for being enormous. He was a really, really big African elephant, as well as being one of the first elephants to be in captivity. But a big problem that he faced was that he was often fed really unhealthy foods. So back in in those days, people would buy sweet cakes to feed to Jumbo. So Jumbo had all these really sugary buns and things to eat. And a lot of mammals love sugar. Like I think a lot of us feel that way. Like if we start eating chocolate or candy or ice cream, you know, you will just go and go and go until you feel sick because there's like this addictive quality where you just want more and more. So similar with Jumbo, he would eat all of these really sweet cakes, but it was giving him lots of problems in his teeth because, uh, number one, elephants, normally they eat uh, lots of leaves and much more fibrous stuff that you really have to chew. So that wears down their teeth a lot more. Um, But Jumbo being fed soft food and cakes and things, you know, his teeth weren't being worn down. So that was giving him him a lot of problems just in that head. His, his teeth were getting a bit too big. But then also it's really sugary. And as we know, sugar can lead to lots of cavities. You can get infections in your teeth. Um, and so Jumbo also had this problem. So not only were his teeth not being worn down enough, but also he had all these hygiene like problems. Um, I think that's quite a common theme in in like the early zoos where it was all about the kind of visitor's experience and um, letting them feed these animals these foods that they really shouldn't be eating and they definitely would not have had access to in the wild. There's examples like, again, in London Zoo, this is like almost 200 years ago, um, they were they had something called the Bear Pit, which was like the main attraction at the time. And it was this circular pit um, that was kind of dug down, which the bears were in, so they couldn't climb out. And all they had in the middle was this um, big telegraph pole and what visitors to the zoo would do was they would buy sticky buns, which um, I think are just kind of like sugary kind of pastries. They'd put them on the end of their walking sticks and hover them over the top of the pole so the bears would have to climb to get their food, um, which on a similar vein to Jumbo led to really bad dental issues um, for these bears. 
is really something that would not obviously be happening now. But yeah, it just shows the kind of lack of understanding of these animals and what they should be eating, um, which I think was a big problem. But thankfully, zoos have moved on quite a lot since then. Uh, another aspect of food and this urban uh, habitats is the fact that urban habitats can actually provide some animals with a lot more food than they would otherwise find, uh, and even of the kind that they that would be good for them, which is something that's not really mentioned. But um, it's uh, so we mentioned like raccoons and and foxes; they've really adapted to take advantage of the urban environment and living with humans. So they you know they eat our food scraps. Um, same with kind of pigeons and, and rats, you know, all these animals, they take advantage of the waste food that we have. But pollinating insects, they can actually benefit from urban habitats because of all the gardens and the flowers that we put into them. So there's been some interesting studies that the Royal Horticultural Society has done of, on the value of garden plants for pollinators. And it's really quite significant because uh, a lot of us, what we try to do is we we like to have flowers in our gardens and we like to have flowers for as long as possible in the gardens in terms of through the year and what that's meant is that a lot of garden plants they actually provide bees and other insects with food for much longer in the year than they would naturally have like well into the autumn um, and that's just because of of the, our human preferences but it happens to benefit um, wildlife so Urban habitats can be good for some animals sometimes. I also think we should, I mean, the film the film really touches upon it as well, I suppose, is how we as humans feel about the animals that share our, you know, our space. And there's a, a lot of mis, yeah, I suppose a lot of people think badly of them. But also we should really be looking at these animals as, how fantastic they're being like raccoons now they're they're city animals everybody thinks of them as living in urban environments the same as foxes but their natural habitat is they're coastal animals so they they go live on beaches and they've completely adapted and managed to change their their diet how they live and everything so as we become more and more urbanized while some animals unfortunately are you know becoming extinct because they don't have that habitat left anymore. Uh, animals like the raccoons and foxes are actually adapting and changing so that they can live side by side as. So they're they're really cool. Yeah, they are really cool. And yeah, it just comes down to understanding them. Like they're so smart and intelligent to be able to adapt to a completely different way of life. Um, and it's something I talk to kids at work quite a lot about as well. Um, so, you know, they, they see things like rats and foxes as pests, but actually, um, why are they here? They're here because we have this food source, you know, we're leaving, you know, in some cases, bins overflowing and things like that. Um, of course, they're going to be here because it's easy food. And the way they've adapted to life living alongside us quite closely, in some cases, is quite amazing. Um, so, yeah, it's a case of just understanding them a bit more, I think. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I suppose in some ways celebrating them as well. Like it's it's so nice that we still have animals left in the city that we can. I don't know about you guys, but I I still when I'm walking home on a night and I see a fox up the street, I'm I'm so excited. I I get and the same as Lauren said, 
we both work with rats at the zoo, so we're quite close to them. But I still get excited when I see a little rat. I think they're I think they're really cute. So I like seeing this wildlife in an otherwise very urban, especially living in London, environment. Absolutely. I really love the mice that live in the tube. Mm-hmm. I find them just so adorable and also so impressive that they're able to survive in this incredibly alien environment to what they would naturally be living in you know with these like massive machines that rumble over top of them you know every few minutes and they they're just able to survive and, and live in that habitat is really amazing yeah they're uh, they re- and the fact that they i've seen them dart in, in between as soon as the tube comes along there's only that small gap but they can get they can just go all the way down flatten themselves down and they never seem to get injured and work their way around. I think they're they're super cute. I love the mice as well. I love I love all things that other people may consider to be pests or vermin. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> I love yeah. these little mice in the tube. They're super cute. And yeah, it's amazing how they can survive. Yeah. A really great um thing I'd recommend for people if if you want to have a bit more of an exploration of animals that have adapted to living with humans, um Planet Earth 2 I think the last episode of it was cities as a habitat because cities now are a major world habitat. You know, more than half the world's people now lives in cities in urban environments. And it's just, you know, we take up so much space now that it it is a habitat now like rainforests or deserts or temperate forests. Now they're cities. On the the topic of habitats, let's move on to the uh, the last point of discussion, I think, is... um, much like food, I think they bring up habitat and habitat loss as an issue, but they only really touch on it just once in that little bit where he's showing them that map and how tiny their forest is. But they never explore what's going to happen in the long term. So, you know, they've they've got plenty of food for this year. And we've already talked about the problems with the fact that it's all human food, but they never talk about, OK, what about next year you know what's what is life going to be like for these this group of animals in the long term yeah i think there's i mean obviously you don't know how those things are going to expand either and uh um especially i suppose at the end when hammy has collected all that food and all he's collected is nuts it doesn't talk about the fact that most of those animals there wouldn't actually be able to live off nuts not really enough food and those were last year's nuts because those were the nuts that he'd saved up the previous year so once they've gone through that you know what are they going to do next year yeah is there is there going to be is there going to be anything anything else left and they don't under they had they don't at any point explore what bit as you say of the forest they have left so they go beyond the hedge but they don't continue and see what's left of the forest that they knew. Yeah, so that's I think that's something that I would have really liked for them to have thought about in this film a bit more, or that it's it's something that's really important to talk about after this film, I think, is what's going to happen, you know, in the next year and the next year with this group of animals. And, and not just in terms of finding food, because... Not only is this habitat lost, so the fact that their forest is a lot is shrunken, but now they're also cut off from other forests. So that's what we call habitat fragmentation. So the forests are smaller, but they're also 
cut off from each other by these stretches of of houses and roads and that can be a problem for animals because it means that you know this group of this little family of of all different animals they're cut off now from other turtles from other possums and from other um porcupines you know so once these young animals grow up how are they going to meet other young animals that's that's another thing that that isn't really mentioned but it's an important conversation to have Mm, absolutely and you see fragmentation happening all over the world where habitat loss is happening and you know if these animals do want to find a boyfriend or a girlfriend in the future they're not going to be able to because they can't access it like that map showed no other green spaces for what looked like miles i don't know um, so yeah, it is a huge issue for animals all over. And the film brings up a lot of ideas around road safety as well. So two of the animals in the movie got struck by a car. And again, it's a, it's a really big, you know, if these animals do try and find food or, as Lauren said, like a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you know, hundreds of these animals get killed on the road as well, which is a, is a big problem when they build these new urban areas. Absolutely. So looking at um, how can we make roads safer for for wildlife is definitely an important issue. Um, In North America, because, you know, big roads and highways that cut across the whole country, it's an issue. But over here in the UK, it, it is still also an issue. So having underpasses or overpasses for wildlife to to get around a, a road is can do a lot to help. Kind of something, yeah, the film didn't really touch on in what can we do as a species to kind of help this. Because the houses have been built now, there's nothing you can do, but there's ways to make your gardens and your like neighbourhoods safer for animals so that they can live alongside us. So things like like the underpasses under big highways or even in your garden, things like making your pond safe with like steps so animals can get out. Like we said earlier, leaving a patch of your garden wild as well so that's um being pushed quite a lot over here um that i see where people are being pushed to just not mow an area so there's wildflowers that can grow um which is really helpful for insects like bees um and pollinators we have things called hedgehog highways that you can cut a little semicircle out of a fence so that hedgehogs can easily pass between gardens and they don't get trapped um and that's kind of what we like to do when i when we teach education sessions about animals we talk about what's happening to them and why and we always try and end with a what can you do about it at the end and i think the film missed out on that kind of aspect of it a little bit like what can we as a species do in terms of final thoughts about the film i think that if you're a teacher or a parent and you're listening into this podcast and you're thinking about using this film to talk about some of these or to teach about some of these environmental issues. I think that with this film, it's really important to have uh, a conversation or some kind of activity to pick apart the things that the film deals with afterwards. And also to, to as you said, Lauren, like have a look at what are the solutions to the problems that are raised in the film, because this film doesn't, doesn't do that. It doesn't have solutions built into it. I think 
for it to have really strong environmental education value, you need to do a follow on with it because it touches on issues, but it doesn't dive deeply into them. And the way that the issues are dealt with in the movie, if you want to use it as an environmental message, it needs to be there needs to be something that you do afterwards, because otherwise there's a lot of issues that could lead to misconceptions afterwards. Yeah, definitely. I think the the only other misconception that the film has as well, I think is something that needs to be spoken about if you're watching it with um, kids, is um, the portrayal of the, of the bear. Bears are often seen as very evil, bad and aggressive animals. Um, as they were in this film as well, it was the villain of the piece, but they're actually not like that at all. Yeah, exactly. They're just, you know, the reason they come into urban areas is simply because they're looking for what they need to survive, if that's food, shelter or water. And yeah, they are quite often depicted as the villain, but that's not the case. So any other final thoughts about this film? Um, on the whole, I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was it was it was a really good it was a nice message not just from an environmental point of view, but it had some good moral messages as well about the importance of sharing and only taking what you need. But it did need some, um, yeah, some conversations after about, you know, how the animals would have survived um, and what it meant for them. And of course, with the attitudes towards the bear. But otherwise, no, it's a good film. I, I, I did enjoy this one. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think it brings up some good points as well um, in terms of the environment. But like you said, it does need a bit of conversation afterwards to kind of pick apart some bits. But overall, good film. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you very much to my guests, Aisha and Lauren. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to share your thoughts and ideas about this film or about anything else, you can, of course, send them in to us at knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at KN underscore podcast. That's it for this episode. Thank you all for listening.